Scripture reading this evening will be from Mark 12, 28-31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our, the Lord our God. The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Good evening. It's a blessing to be together this Lord's Day. We're thankful for another opportunity to come together as God's children. It is always a good thing to be able to come together as we so desire to worship God and give Him our time and our devotion and praises. And we're thankful for yet another opportunity to be able to do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're certainly grateful for your presence uh, this evening. If you are visiting with us, we're especially grateful that you have come our way this afternoon. And we hope that uh, you are encouraged as a result of our time together. If there is any question that you have about anything that we say or do here, anything that we teach, we would welcome an opportunity to sit down and study the Bible together. Because that's what we just want to do. We want to be biblical in our practice and our Christianity. We want to do what is right and pleasing to God. And that is going to be sort of the basis of what we are going to be focused on tonight. As we uh, do, and there are, we have several new families that are here with us uh, at Westside, and we're thankful and glad that you have recently joined us. But something that we do here periodically, about once a quarter, is how it's been divided up so far, is to do a Q&A service where we focus on questions that you have. And there is a box in the foyer on my right side, uh, back behind uh, this wall here. Just there's a table there with some of the Bible class material. There's a box there that you can uh, jot down a question. You can remain anonymous if you want to. Uh, if you want to jot down your name, I will keep it a secret. I think I have made that uh, clear, but I want to reiterate that. I will keep you anonymous. It's just kind of for my benefit, so that way if... You put your name down, I can say, hey, I'm going to be sure I get to this question tonight, and that way I can let you know. Uh, so it would just be for that kind of information only, I assure you. So if you have any questions, I would encourage you to jot it down. We have several good questions that we're going to be trying to address tonight, and that's something that we are going to be engaged in uh, periodically for the foreseeable future. Also, in uh, relation to that, if you have uh, a, a, as we study it and as we explore these issues or these questions, my goal is to be biblical in an answer. It's not to give you just my opinion. Now, if I do step over into the realm of answering it from an opinion based, I will, I will hopefully clarify that that I'm letting you know this is what the Scriptures teach, but here is what I personally think about this, and here's a personal conclusion that I have come to based on this passage. 
That's something that I hope that will be abundantly clear. And whenever there is something like that that's opinion-based, you don't have to agree with that. I just want that to be stated at, at the outset, that you don't have to agree with everything that is presented. If there is something that I have missed, uh, please bring that to my attention. Uh, I want to be able to account for that. And so this evening we're going to be looking at uh, several questions tonight uh, that have been submitted. And some of these I'm having to kind of play catch up on because there were uh, they were submitted a while back and I have not been able to get to them yet. And so I'm going to try to present uh, some of those and then hopefully we'll get to some of the newer ones that have recently come in over the past month or, or so. And so the first question that we are going to address tonight is to what extent does the devil control and rule the earth? It might be something that you have never really considered or it may be something that you consider a great deal. How does the devil rule this world? How much does how much control does he have? And Satan it's obvious from the scriptures he has an Abundance of influence in this world. In First Peter, in First Peter chapter five, as the Apostle Peter is writing and as he is describing Satan, he says in First Peter chapter five and verse eight, he says, "Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour." He is our enemy, and we cannot afford to ignore him. Jesus even describes Jesus, uh, the devil as the ruler of this world. That he does not play around with the enormous amount of influence and power that the devil has. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he has several statements in 2 Corinthians about Satan and his work. And influence in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and in verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Uh, he is scheming, he is an enemy, he is an adversary, he is someone who is seeking to always do us harm. And so we cannot afford to be ignorant of how he might work and how he might operate. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, just a couple of chapters later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and in verse 4, as Paul is talking about the gospel and how it is uh, salvation for those who are uh, obedient to it, but it is it, the gospel is also veiled to those who disbelieve, for those who are not looking for it by faith. And he says in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Just Isn't that an interesting description here of Satan? That the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that Satan is the God of this world. That is a little g-God. That he is the one who operates and has influence and control in this world among those who are unbelieving. 
Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in 2 Corinthians 11th chapter, and in verse 14, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 14, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That the devil, he wants to come in and disguise himself. He does not want to just be seen from the get-go. He wants to be disguised as someone who is appearing to do what is good or what is right so that he can gain influence over the unsuspecting. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians would describe Satan as the prince of the power of the air. He has this enormous amount of power in this world. There is no doubt. Scriptures are very clear in that. And so, how does he have this kind of influence? Is he, is he able to control the minds of people? You know, there are a lot of people that would believe in demon possession and things of that nature uh, that would still even be around today, they would argue. And I do not believe that. The prophecy in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 13, Zechariah, I believe, addresses this issue. As Zechariah is prophesying about the coming of the kingdom and the coming king who would uh, be the Messiah, he says about his work as the Messiah in Zechariah chapter 13 and in verse 2, he says, if you go back to verse 1, he says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. You know, sometimes we will sing, there's a fountain free, tis for you and me. And I think that's based on this uh, verse here. That this is uh, a, a messianic prophecy about the coming of Christ and what Jesus is going to accomplish when He comes and offers Himself as the sacrifice for sin. But he goes on in verse 2 that it will come about in that day, that day when Jesus comes, declares the Lord of hosts that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. That part of the coming of the Messiah was going to be to exert power and authority over the influence of Satan. That when Jesus came to this earth, He was going to limit and defeat Satan. So while the devil still has influence and power, I believe it is severely handicapped because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because of the kingdom of Christ, that He has been defeated. And that doesn't mean that Satan doesn't have influence. It means that Satan is operating as a defeated enemy. You might think of some of the, if you like, old history and old, old war stories, for instance. There are skirmishes that would take place weeks, even months after a war had officially been over. Because news had not gotten to uh, those people. That happened... Uh, with this instance, the Confederate ship 
the CSS Shenandoah. The con- this Confederate ship captured or sank 38 Union merchant vessels during its active deployment, which lasted six months after Lee's surrender. Because reliable news was hard to come by on the open sea, the captain and crew of the Shenandoah were not confident that the Confederacy had collapsed and continued to chase Union ships across the Pacific. During the summer months, the ship sunk or captured 21 vessels, including 11 Union whalers, in sub-Arctic waters in a span of seven hours, thereby situating the last shots of the American Civil War somewhere along the Aleutian Islands. On August 2nd, 1865, the Shenandoah encountered a British bark and learned that the war was over. In response, the ship sailed south around Cape Horn and north to Liverpool, where it finally made its formal surrender on November 7, 1865. However, officers and crew members were unable to return to the United States for years to avoid uh, prosecution for piracy. The war had been over for a long time, hadn't it? But they kept on fighting. That's what I would suggest is a good parallel for how we could think about Satan. Satan is a defeated enemy. At the cross of Christ and through the resurrection of Jesus, Satan and his works have been destroyed. But he's not going to cease trying to pull as many with him into the skirmishes until it's completely over and he must surrender at the final day. So he has influence, but he is severely handicapped and he is beaten as an enemy. A second question that we received is, is death caused by the devil? And death is clearly associated with sin. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis, the second chapter, and in verses 16 and 17, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and the Lord gave to them the command that from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And we know in chapter 3 what happens, don't we? Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they died. I believe because of that sin, that violation of God's law, they died that day, not physically, they died spiritually, which is still what happens to anyone who sins. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5, In Romans chapter 5 and in verse 12, Paul, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That everyone that has sinned has died spiritually. That they are separated from God. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we continue to see after the uh, curses that God placed upon the, the serpent and upon the man and the woman, that they were exiled from the garden. 
They were prevented from being able to have access to the tree of life where they would live forever in that relationship of separation. Where they would always, where if they were to eat of that, then they would have been irredeemable. But there is what I would suggest is there is a distinction between causation and correlation. That's sometimes the tricky thing with numbers and statistics, isn't it? That you have to be careful about saying that this caused something just because there's a correlation or because there's association. Satan was influenced, influencing Adam and Eve, no doubt, through the temptation. He wanted them to violate the law that God had given. But God, He is the one who created this world where death is a possibility. Remember in the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. In Ecclesiastes, the ninth chapter. Solomon says in verse 11, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Time and chance overtake them all. He says, you know, the, the fastest guy doesn't always win, right? The best team in football, and since it's opening weekend, the Chiefs didn't win the Super Bowl. The best team didn't win, right, last year? You can disagree with that. That's one of those opinion uh, parts of this. But the fastest doesn't always win. The best team doesn't always win. Because time and chance overtake them all. Time. Earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 and in verse 2, there is a time to, uh, to give birth and a time to die. God created this world, this materialistic world, this physical world where there is a possibility for life or for death. Again, I'm not arguing causation here. I'm just saying that there is correlation. I'm not saying that God causes death. So I would not either say that the devil causes death. I just believe that death is a natural part of the experience of living in this world. Death is part of the rules of this game of life that we are living. However, death is a bitter reminder of the devil's grasp on this world. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews the second chapter, the Hebrew writer, he uses this interesting phrase here in Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 14. As he's talking about Jesus and how He became a partaker of flesh and blood, he says that Jesus partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Death is certainly a demonstration of Satan's power because of its association with sin. I think that's one of the reasons why in John chapter 11 and verse 35, at the death of His friend Lazarus, Jesus wept. And one of the reasons that the resurrection is such a, 
a doctrine that is filled with hope and encouragement is that the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection will both show that Satan does not get the final word. He does not win. That we win because of what Jesus accomplished. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in that great chapter on the resurrection of the dead, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 54, when the Apostle Paul says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death does not win. And while we don't have to fear being dead as Christians, the process of dying is often unpleasant and very painful, isn't it? Because death is a reminder of what sin has brought into this world. We live in a world of pain and suffering and death and sorrow. And Satan, he certainly introduced it to us through temptation. But... Does he cause death? In the book of Job, it seems that when when Job had everything taken from him, God gave a lot of allowance to Job, didn't He? You remember the story, I'm sure. Job lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. But the one thing that God placed as a limit upon Satan, in Job chapter 2 and verse 6, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. The one thing that the devil could not do was killing. And so it seems that that is the one limitation that God does place on the devil there in what treating death as something that is out of bounds, that would be out of the possibility. And so I don't believe the devil causes death. He can certainly be a contributing factor however, because of temptation and sin and His power over death that we have. The question that we received also, why do we worship on Sunday? And this is a multifaceted question, I think. The first day of the week is the day that Christians have assembled for worship ever since the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, 
That was on the day of Pentecost. And that was a Jewish feast day, a festival that the Jews observed that is found in the book of Leviticus in Leviticus chapter 23. And in verses 15 and 16, if you want to jot down those verses, in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, you have the instructions there that what the Jews would do, they would count seven Sabbaths. And then on the next day, they would begin this uh, festival of Pentecost. And I'm no great mathematician, but seven Sabbaths, and it would be seven weeks, so seven times seven, that's 49. And then Penta, and Pentecost is the 50th day. So add one, the Sabbath day being the last day of the week, Saturday in our calendar, the next day would be Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's day. So Acts chapter 2, all the events there in Acts the second chapter that are taking place when Peter and the apostles are preaching on that uh, first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus, when the church is beginning, when they first preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified and His resurrection, when the people ask, what shall we do? They are told to repent and be baptized. That is all taking place on the first day of the week. On the Lord's Day. And we find there that they continued to spend time with each other, that they uh, had fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayer, that they observed the Lord's Supper. And you continue on in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, and that's only a few, you know, several chapters later in the book of Acts, it's in the same book, but what might be surprising to us is that there's probably about 20, 25 years or so that transpired between Acts 2 and Acts chapter 20. And yet, what day of the week are they still assembling on? In Acts chapter 20 and in verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in 1 Corinthians the 16th chapter, and in verses 1 and 2, Paul, as he was writing to the church at Corinth, he said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. What I just want us to first see here is that the first day of the week is when Christians have assembled for worship, for Lord's Supper observance, for giving of their means since the very institution and beginning of the church. From the very beginning, in all these different locations, in Jerusalem, when Paul was at Troas in Acts 20, he's, and Paul is also writing to the church at Corinth to do what the churches in Galatia are doing, and that is assembling on the first day of the week. Christians assemble on the first day of the week because the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. Jesus arose from the dead 
on the first day. You can read in the Gospel accounts in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 16, the first few verses there. And we also learn in other passages the great significance of the resurrection. That this is a day that we need to keep and we need to remember. And it's a day that we need to continue to observe because it's a day that is important to our faith and the very confession that we make when we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave His life for us and who was raised on the third day. That we live that out each and every week in our commitments, in our time, in worshiping together, giving honor and praise to God. We do that because Jesus was raised. And we no longer are required to keep the Sabbath day as a holy day because we are no longer under the law of Moses. Jesus gave His life and His blood to establish a new covenant. A new order of things. And so we are never, we're not required to keep the Sabbath day as a holy day. That doesn't mean that Christians can assemble on Saturday. This coming week we will be here on Saturday, won't we, for the start of our gospel meeting. We'll be here on a Saturday to worship together, to study from God's Word. We are free to meet any day that we want to. And when the church assembles, we all ought to be here. Nevertheless, the first day of the week is the required assembly that we must keep in keeping with the pattern that we find in the Scriptures. I think this is the fourth question. I'm trying to remember. But we got received another question pertaining to the church of Christ. Is it wrong to worship at any place that says Church of Christ? I think another way that you could probably ask this, is it right to worship at any place that says Church of Christ? And this is a very important question, a very relevant question, because there are many so-called Churches of Christ that are not living and doing and practicing and teaching the truth. Because any church of Christ, us at Westside, we're no exception. Any church of Christ is at risk of losing their candlestick. In the language that Jesus uses in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, and in verse 5, as he has a message, the Lord has a message for the church at Ephesus. He says there to that church, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. There may be many churches that are not holding to the truth, that have compromised the truth. 
We don't want to be that. And we might think of many of the scars from battles over institutionalism that we still even see today. Whether we can support certain things from the church treasury or not. There have thankfully been renewed discussions between brethren about those agreements or disagreements. We might think about other things that churches have engaged in that have upheld false teaching on the subject of marriage and divorce or remarriage. Or maybe those who have accepted instrumental music into worship services. There have been all sorts of departures from the faith. Those are just a handful there. And while I would be willing to acknowledge those people in most of those congregations probably as brethren, as erring brethren, I don't know if I would be in good conscience able to worship with them for an extended period of time or being a member with them in that congregation if I had felt that they had lost their candlestick, if they had lost their influence. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in verses 14 and 15, Paul says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, Take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There is someone or congregations that we might know of and that we might have friends or family members in those congregations. I think a long-term kind of relationship with those Churches would be problematic, at least for me, from a conscientious standpoint. If they are not practicing the truth, if they're not trying to follow the way of Christ. But there is something to be said as well for those who remain. For those who try to fight it out in those difficult situations. In the book of Revelation, going back there, we looked at the church and Jesus and His words to the church at Ephesus. But there was another church that Jesus described as a dead church. You might think, I don't want to be part of a dead church. They might, maybe they practice the truth, but they just have no life, they have no zeal, they have no, no nothing that would be encouraging. But in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 3, as he says in verse 1, Jesus has this message, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Skipping down to verse 4, he says, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. 
And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There were a few in that church that was described as dead that had not turned away. They had kept trying to do what was right. There's something to be said for those who might remain in some difficult places who have not soiled themselves or who have not compromised the truth and maybe they're trying to persuade that church to do what's right. And so... I think we need to be very careful. We need to be very selective in where we might choose to worship and where we might choose to be a member. And if we are going to go into places that we feel that they have compromised the truth, we need to not be ashamed of defending the truth and speaking it boldly so that people may hear and know what they ought to do. I'll address one final question this evening. How do you handle when a family member comes out as a homosexual? This is probably related in a lot of ways to the Bible class that we had on Wednesday night a few weeks ago. And no matter what, when dealing with this subject, and I think it's one that we're going to have to be able to converse more and more about in the years to come, when dealing with people who are in sin of any kind, we must speak the truth and we must do so in love. Truth and compassion. Those become the essential elements in being able to talk to someone who has adopted a different lifestyle than what we would approve of. Someone who lives in sin. The book of Ephesians, Paul he says that we need to speak the truth in love. Truth and compassion are what would be necessary. And we need to recognize that someone like this can change. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the church of Corinth, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What is amazing about this passage is that here you have that what Paul says, such were some of you. There were people in that church at Corinth who had lived and participated in the sins of homosexuality. How many of us would feel comfortable going to a church where there were 
former homosexuals there. Don't answer that out loud. <laughs> we have to be willing to let these people change, don't we? If we believe that they can change, we have to be willing to let them change. But in that, you cannot compromise the truth. And whenever there is a family member who has come out, or a friend who has come out and has identified as a homosexual, we cannot compromise the truth in order to show solidarity with them. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he talks about several sins that were committed and he talks about homosexuality where men abandoned the natural function of the woman and they burned in their lust men with men committing indecent acts. But Paul says at the end of that chapter, in verse 32, talking about all these sins, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Giving approval to those who practice sin. That's sinful as well. And so we cannot show our solidarity with the sin and with the behaviors that we see. And so what someone might then ask is, well then, do I have to cut off all communication or all my relationships with a family member or a friend or someone that I know that has adopted a lifestyle and is engaging in sin that I just find uh, grotesque and that I have no desire to be a part of that. And to me, that's when this really becomes a very difficult question. My personal conviction is that we don't have to cut off all ties with family members who may be involved in the sin of homosexuality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 10, Paul, as he is talking about church discipline, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, I did not at all, as he has said, you know, you need to not associate with people who are sinners or an immoral people. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. If you're going to consistently apply that rule, if you're going to say, well, I don't have any association with you because you're a homosexual, but then I have to go to work or something and be around homosexuals all the time. Good luck explaining that to the person that you're alienating from your life. That's going to be tough. It's going to be tough.
if they have never obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if they are not a Christian, then I think 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 applies. You can't get out of the world, right? You're going to have to live amongst the evil that is here, and you just have to try to prevent it from influencing you, you and your family as much as you can. But you cannot consistently avoid all manner of sin or sinners. But if they are Christians who have become unfaithful and fallen into sin, particularly the sin of homosexuality, and the church has withdrawn from them, then I think we have to look at verses 9 and 11 here. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. In verse 11 he says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. At your association with someone like that who is a so-called brother that has turned in, turned away from the truth, has turned away into immorality, the sexual kind, he says you need to limit your interactions with them. And so your behavior, your connections with them must change in those scenarios. And so if the way that I look at it is if someone who has never obeyed the gospel, then you can use some wisdom and you have some liberty in how much you have to do with them and there might be some boundaries that you make. You might say, I'm never going to have that person into my home as long as they live this way or something like that. But I don't think you have to throw all that relationship out the window or that connection that you have. But I think we have to use some wisdom and treat several of these things in a case-by-case basis. If someone is belligerent and says, well, Sean, he's, he's friendly with me and even though I live this lifestyle and he certainly wouldn't agree with it, but he, he seems to accept me and so if, he, if they try to use that against me, then I need to be careful about that. I don't need to allow someone to uh, try to use that for approval. But I don't think you have to say you will cut off all manner of associations with them. Being at the same home or the same party or the same uh, gathering. Because we ultimately want to be able to influence them for good. We want to be able to admonish them to repent of their sins. And if we cut off ties with them completely, then there comes the great chance that they will only live in the echo chamber of the LGBTQ community. And so we must be careful about that as well. We began tonight in our reading in Mark chapter 12. In Mark, the 12th chapter, when Jesus was 
asked a question. What commandment is the foremost of all? What is the most important commandment? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered very clearly with Scripture. He said, The foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus loved answering questions. His questions can help us. They can benefit us. Asking the questions and hearing answers to them. But what we must be willing to do when we ask a question, we must be willing to receive a biblical answer. And the question that this man asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, it's to love God. My question is for you tonight. Do you love God? Are you willing to give Him your heart, your mind, and your complete and utter self and being? That is the one thing that you must do if you're going to receive eternal life. Because there is an open fountain that Jesus has opened that would bring living water for each and every one of us so that we could have eternal life. Will you come to Him to drink of that water? Tonight, we want to encourage you to do that. If we can help you in some way, would you come as we stand and as we sing?